gathering with us. I want to pray and then I'm going to get into the Bible study for the evening. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we're grateful for your grace for another week of life and the privilege of knowing you and walking with you by faith. Lord, in the midst of uh, so many things that change, uh, you are unchanging. In the midst of so many things that are uncertain, uh, you are absolutely certain. And we're grateful that we can depend on you, your faithfulness, your righteousness, your goodness, and your grace to us in all things. Uh, we pray for uh, our country as we're continuing to um, move toward this election season and, and with uh, the hearings and different things that are going on. Uh, Lord, we know ultimately you're sovereign. Uh, but we trust in you uh, that uh, you'll guide and bring things along uh, for our good and for your glory, and that would be what we would pray for. And we lift up those in our church family that are uh, dealing with health issues, some that are recovering even now from surgery, and others that are getting ready to have uh, things done or, or maybe circumstances that they're having to face from the health perspective, and just pray you would bring healing and encouragement to each one and that they would be mindful of your presence uh, in their lives. We're thankful for the opportunity we have to to reopen our uh, Sprouts Children's Ministry this Sunday and I uh, pray for our leaders and teachers and uh, the kids and the families, the folks that will take part, that uh, your hand would be on us and that we would not have any issues and we're thankful that uh, school uh, has opened back up and uh, pray that that would continue to go well, and uh, Lord, that we would uh, move in the right direction. Uh, so, Father, bless our Bible study now. Thank you for the message and the ministry of uh, the prophet Hosea. Uh, these are uh, rather challenging truths. Uh, they're, in some ways, hard to understand, but uh, by the power of your Spirit, uh, you show us the way and you help us to understand uh, what is right and true and consistent with who you are. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you will, turn to Hosea chapter 4 in the Old Testament. Uh, we've been studying the subject of the relentless love of God from the prophet Hosea. And this evening, our study is going to be focusing on chapter 4. And the message is entitled, Truth, Mercy, and the Knowledge of God. And you'll see why here in just a few moments. Hosea's name means salvation. It is a rather dark case study of a rebellious people of God's relentless love in spite of their rebellion and hard-heartedness and God's call to repent in the midst of all of that. Hosea's ministry covered a time span of about 40 years. Uh, his messages are directed toward Israel uh, in the northern kingdom. And at the forefront uh, are idolatry, spiritual failure, and moral corruption. These things were absolutely rampant because of the sinfulness of the people. Yet in the midst of all of that, the light of God's love shines through the darkness of that idolatry. Even in the midst of judgment that was to come, uh, there is hope because of who God is. And we focused on how the marriage of Hosea and Gomer is symbolic of the relationship that God has with his people. Uh, God rebuked the people and he called them to repentance. God has always been a faithful husband to his people. Uh, and uh, 
Jesus Christ is the bridegroom and we are the bride as the church and we are to be faithful to him as he has been faithful to us. But unfortunately, many of the people weren't then and many of them aren't now. In chapter 3, the focus was on how God pursues his people, that God is the relentless pursuer of his people, that he's the one who comes after us and by his grace brings us into a relationship with himself. Hosea's wife, Gomer, is a picture of a lost sinner. Uh, just like Gomer, all who are lost in their sins have a tendency to pursue their own lust and to care nothing for God, but nothing can stop the pursuing love of God, and God redeems his people. When we're lost, we're captured in our sins, but because of what Christ has done for us, there's redemption, there's deliverance. He was willing to endure uh, pain and shame and public humiliation and even separation in order to redeem us from our sins. And when he saves us, he sets us on a purpose uh, for the rest of our lives. He gives us a direction uh, that we're to live by. And when God saves us, it's because he loves us. us. Having been created in his image, he delivers us and he sets us on the path that he wants us to walk. And one of the things that we highlighted last week is that you cannot meet Jesus and not be changed and nothing be transformed in your life because everything about your life is changed if you truly know him. So we shouldn't take lightly what the Lord has done for us. Uh, when we think about where we were because of our sins, if we give just a moment's thought about where we were headed and what God has done for us, then it is truly transformational. So what I want to do in these few moments that we have together is really work through this passage with a few verses at the time. But at first, I want to draw your attention, and we'll read it in a few minutes, but I want to draw your attention to verses 11 through 14, because I would identify Hosea 4, verses 11 through 14, really as the main issue uh, being idolatry. It was idolatry that enslaved the hearts of the people. It was the spirit of harlotry that caused them to stray and to commit adultery against the Lord. And the problem is particularly staggering when you consider how faithful God is and how good he was to his people. And they didn't outwardly say, hey, we want to just leave the Lord. We want to abandon him and we want to serve pagan gods. That's not what they said. Rather, what they wanted to do was to add pagan gods and the worship of them on top of the worship of the Lord. So they foolishly asked counsel from wooden idols. They offered sacrifices on the mountaintops. They burned incense on the hills and under the trees. And the scripture says that those who didn't understand would be trampled. They were destined for nothing more than judgment. Now, the root problem of all of this is that there was no truth, mercy, or knowledge of God in the land. What happens when people reject truth, mercy, and the knowledge of God in the land? Well, we find out what happens here in uh, Hosea chapter 4. And unfortunately, we have a real-time, modern case study 
in our own country of what happens when people reject all of these things. And we're seeing it before our very eyes and when it should break our hearts. First truth I want to show you is that when people reject truth, mercy, and the knowledge of God, it leads to depravity. It leads to depravity. Hosea chapter 4 and verse 1 says, Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel, for the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. By swearing and lying, killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break all restraint with bloodshed upon bloodshed. Think about this phrase just for a moment. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. This is a significant problem. The Lord brings a charge against his people. God, in essence, is the plaintiff. The Israelites are the defendants. This is presented like a lawsuit. Truth has to be rooted in something more than personal opinion. Understanding and wisdom always begin with the knowledge of God. Proverbs 9 and verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. You remember in the, in the New Testament, as Jesus was approaching the cross, truth was put on trial and uh, judged by people who were filled with lies and meaning to bring him harm. It involved Annas, who was the former high priest, Caiaphas, who was the reigning high priest, along with the Jewish Sanhedrin, and then finally Pontius Pilate in John chapter 18. You remember Pilate entered the praetorium and he had a conversation with Jesus. Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? So what he had before him in the person of Jesus was the embodiment of of truth. He was truth in the flesh, having come from God as God in the flesh, as the second person of the Trinity. And the question has never been more important than it is today, what is truth? Well, from an Old Testament perspective, the word for truth means firmness, constancy, or duration. So it implies something that is settled, that is foundational, and that is lasting. The word for truth in the New Testament literally means to unhide something, or to state it another way, hiding nothing, something that is uncovered. Truth is evident. It's uh, able to be seen by all should they desire to see it. We also think about truth as that which corresponds to reality. Now, the ultimate reality is God. So if we accept the premise that God is the ultimate reality, then that which is truth is whatever corresponds to the character of God 
and the Word of God, because this is where truth is defined. Now, there are any number of philosophies and worldviews that uh, challenge the concept of truth, and if I were preaching this message even, say, 20 years ago, I would have made the case that relativism dominated, that uh, all roads lead to the top of the mountain, and with relativism being the dominant worldview that you could have your view and I could have my view and somebody else could have their view and we could all be considered equally right according to that relativistic worldview. That's what I would have told you 20 years ago was the dominant force. I no longer believe that to be true. I believe, in fact, we are dealing with absolutism and absolutes as the dominant worldviews. It just depends on which form of absolutism you want to hold to. So, for example, if uh, secular liberalism is your ideology, that's your absolute truth. It doesn't mean that we can tolerate one another because they're going to view my view as wrong coming from a Judeo-Christian worldview with the Bible as the truth. And I think that is very much the case in the United States. Now, I'm not saying that carte blanche about every area of the world in terms of worldviews. I know that varies. But you see this very clearly. And you see this even in the way terms are defined and used. If you don't use the terms that go along with whatever the secular humanistic viewpoint is and the secular liberalism viewpoint is, then you are, in fact, wrong. And that is a statement that is an absolute statement. So it's not a relativistic viewpoint anymore. Everybody's drawing their lines. So let's be clear about what lines we're drawing. And the lines that we're drawing uh, are founded on the fact that the ultimate reality is God himself, whose character and his word define truth. And that's what we hold to from a biblical worldview. Now, why is truth so important? It's so important because there are major consequences and there is a huge price to pay for being wrong. And you think about everyday uh, consequences that we might face of being wrong. If you're taking a medication and it's something that could potentially harm you and you take the wrong dosage, it can either make you sick or it can kill you. There is an absolute idea about what's going to be good for you. If you entrust your resources and your retirement to the wrong people and they take advantage of you, you could lose it all. Um, ultimately, it, it's a long time to be wrong when we're looking at this from a spiritual standpoint. And if we do believe that there is such a thing as a heaven and a hell, and there is a way to get to heaven, which is Jesus Christ, and we don't accept that, well, if you're wrong about that, that's a long time to be wrong. You have an eternity to be wrong, and the consequences go along with it. So I would say to you that as we think about the definition of truth, we also say that truth is not whatever works. So we cannot define truth by pragmatism. There are things that are true that are also pragmatic, and there's nothing wrong with that. But that's not how we define truth. Because some things, quote-unquote, work and maybe make something happen for us 
but in fact they're not true or they're not what is best for us also truth is not determined by whatever makes us happy uh, whatever makes us happy might actually take us to hell we need to be careful that self is not the god and that we're not in the same trap that the people were here in the scripture of being wrapped up in harlotry and idolatry and everything else now furthermore truth is not determined by the majority the majority is often wrong truth is not defined by whatever the popular opinion is truth is often an unpopular opinion so if we're going to hold to this worldview uh, we've got to have some confidence in what we believe and in whom we believe the apostle paul wrote his own indictment of the nations i want to read just a short passage beginning in romans chapter 1 and verse 18 he says for the wrath of god is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness romans 1 and verse 19 because what may be known of god is manifest in them for god has shown it to them for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they're without excuse. Now listen to verse 21. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thank thankful, and became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So let me summarize that. God revealed himself, people turned away from his revelation, and as a result of that, judgment is poured out. God gave them over to the uncleanness uh, of the lust of their hearts, to their vile passions, to their debased minds. That's the subject of truth and the importance of it. And what about mercy? Well, mercy has to go beyond self-interest. Mercy is received, but then it's extended. So the idea of mercy here in this verse is the idea of compassion. Mercy and compassion are basically the same idea biblically. In the Bible, mercy is extended to an offender in the form of forgiveness. So God extends mercy to us as he forgives us in Christ when we repent and believe. Uh, mercy is from God for the, for the sinner and God withholds the judgment that is justly deserved. He does not give us what we deserve, in other words. And it can also mean healing or relief from some form of suffering. In a, in a life kind of a way for us, we see it as we forgive others, and it also is compassionate treatment of those who are in distress. And as the Beatitude says, uh, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. The theologian and pastor Jonathan Edwards said, God is pleased to show mercy to his enemies according to his own sovereign pleasure. And though he is infinitely above all and stands in no need of creatures, yet he is graciously pleased to take a merciful note of poor worms in the dust. Millard Erickson in a more contemporary Christian theology wrote, God's mercy is tender-hearted, loving compassion for his people. It is his tenderness of heart toward the needy, and if grace contemplates humans as sinful, guilty, and condemned, mercy sees them as miserable and needy. 
You see, the people lacked mercy toward others in Hosea's day. And further, the scripture tells us here in verse 2, they break all restraint. Now let's think about this for a moment. What happens when people have no restraint? Well, scripture tells us they're swearing, lying, killing, stealing, adultery. It all follows. And notice the uh, almost the emphasis that he places on it with bloodshed upon bloodshed. I couldn't help but think as I was um, watching just a bit of the Supreme Court uh, hearing this week and hearings this week and uh, just the absolute passion that many of the politicians have for the subject of abortion. I couldn't help but think about this very verse. And I typically uh, try to stay away from issues that are uh, political, but I don't try to stay away from issues that are biblical. And I would never, ever, under any circumstance, for any reason, ever, did you hear what I said, support anyone who doesn't understand and support the value of life. And I don't apologize for it to anybody. Life matters, and I'm thankful that God has given me life. And I think we need to be careful to be people who are proponents of life from the beginning to the end. Now, notice what happens when they break all restraint. There's no boundaries. There's no rules just right. Find your own way. Personal happiness is the ultimate. This is the fruit that we see, and the world revolves around you. Depravity is nothing more than moral corruption or wickedness. Jeremiah said, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17 and verse 9. The unbeliever does what is consistent with the nature of an unbeliever. So when people reject truth, mercy, and the knowledge of God, it leads to depravity. Then second, when people reject truth, mercy, and the knowledge of God, um, it leads to damage. Let's pick back up reading here in verse 3. Therefore the land will mourn, and everyone who dwells there will waste away with the beast of the field and the birds of the air. Even the fish of the sea will be taken away. Human sin even brings consequences to the natural world. Creation groans and cries out for renewal is what Romans says. And the basic premise for us from a creation care standpoint is that as believers, we should steward God's creation for his glory, but we should not worship God's creation in place of the God who created it. Genesis 1 and verse 28 says, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. So when we think about stewarding what God has entrusted to us, it implies caretaking and intelligently managing the resources God has blessed us with. I think there were creation care principles in the Old Testament even in the way that they farmed and they would allow the land to lie fallow for a while and they would come back and farm it again. They took care of it so they could continue to produce uh, what they needed. 
And we know that the whole of creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time, Romans 8 and verse 22. So when we look around us, what we can see is that God graciously has provided for us what we need in the beauty of his creation. So it is perfectly consistent with a creation care mindset that we would be proponents of things like clean water and clean air and taking care of the creation God's given us and the beauty of the parks statewide and national, different things like that. All those things are good because they're good gifts that God has given to us and we should be faithful in that area. But we also know that there's a new heaven and a new earth that's coming. 2 Peter 3 and verse 11 says, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Now listen to what verse 13 says. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You know what God's going to do in that new heavens and in the new earth? It's going to be, I think, personally, it's going to be a lot like Eden was. There's not going to be sin pre-fall. There's going to be the beauty of what God has made. We're going to be entrusted with responsibilities. So we're moving from uh, the, the circumstance that we saw in the garden in Eden to the hope-filled promise of the new heavens and the new earth and all the way through, God is faithful to us as his people. So here's what I want to say in conclusion to this point. We care for God's creation as long as it lasts in its present form. And that is our responsibility as good stewards. And we can be faithful in doing that without worshiping the creation. We can still worship the creator. Now, next truth is that when people reject truth, mercy, and the knowledge of God, it leads to destruction. Let's pick back up reading in verse 4. Now let no man contend or rebuke another, for your people are like those who contend with the priest. Therefore you shall stumble in the day. The prophet shall also stumble with you in the night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I will also reject you from being priests for me because you've forgotten the law of your God. I will also forget your children. The more they increased, verse 7, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They eat up the sin of my people. They set their heart on their iniquity, and it shall be like people like priests. So I will punish them for their ways and reward them for their deeds. For they shall eat, but not have enough. They shall commit harlotry, but not increase, because they've ceased obeying the Lord. Verse 11, harlotry, wine, and new wine enslave the heart. My people ask counsel from their wooden idols, and their staff informs them. For the spirit of harlotry has caused them to stray, and they have played the harlot against their God. Ironically, religion in that time period was growing. But the priest and many of the prophets were going along with idolatry. The very people that should have been leading the people were going along with it. James Montgomery Boyce said, Godlessness is not incompatible with religion. In fact, it goes along with it nicely. And we could see evidence of that around us as well, that so-called churches and so-called Christian leaders who don't even believe the Bible, they don't believe the gospel. And those things increase 
in the midst of idolatry. And the religious leaders stumbled and it led to their downfall. And their allegiance was to other people and not to God. They ignored their duty to communicate the law of God to the nation and they were going to be judged because of it. They led the people to make hypocritical sacrifices and they deserted the Lord and they broke his covenants. You remember why Gomer uh, left Hosea? For these things and for pleasure, according to chapter 2 and verse 5. So when we look at the world system, what does the world system do? It lures people in with food and sex and wealth and religion. Food can lead to gluttony and waste. Sex outside of marriage is sin against the body and against the Lord. Money leads to greed and misplaced priorities if it's not used well. Religion can contribute to man's desire to set himself up as his own God. So what's happening here is that sensual pleasures rob people of their senses, leaving them without understanding. And as a result of it, there's all sorts of pagan activity and practices and uh, improper sacrifices and even things like cult prostitution that they were dealing with and more. And he says in verse, back in verse 6, for my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge make no mistake about it unfaithfulness to god leads to destruction always oswald chambers said this he said god's will is hard only when it comes up against our stubbornness then it is as cruel as a plowshare and as devastating as an earthquake let me state that one more time God's will is hard only when it comes up against our stubbornness. Then it is as cruel as a plowshare and as devastating as an earthquake. It is absolutely a downhill run in the wrong direction when people reject truth, mercy, and the knowledge of God. Individuals shipwreck their lives in rebellion against God. It affects their own individual lives. It affects their families. It affects communities, and it ultimately affects a nation. Now let's read the last part of Hosea chapter 4. Beginning in verse 13, they offer sacrifices on the mountaintops. They burn incense on the hills under oaks, poplars, and terebits because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters commit harlotry and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they commit harlotry, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go apart with harlots and offer sacrifices with a ritual harlot. Therefore, people who do not understand will be trampled. Though you, Israel, play the harlot, let not Judah offend. Do not come up to Gilgal, nor go up to beth nor swear an oath, saying, as the Lord lives. For Israel, watch this, verse 16, is stubborn, like a stubborn calf. Now the Lord will let them forage like a lamb in open country. Ephraim is joined to idols, let him alone. Their drink is rebellion. They commit harlotry continually. Her rulers dearly love dishonor. The wind has wrapped her up in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. The heart of this rebellion is revealed in verse 16. Israel is stubborn like a stubborn calf. Psalm 32 and verse 9 says, Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by the bit and the bridle. When it comes to following God, we should not be stubborn. We should rather be pliable in his hands. 
The people stubbornly turned their backs on God. They forgot his works. They disobeyed his laws. They followed after false gods. And the prophet was saying, God's going to let you go into your own way, but there are going to be some really painful consequences when you go. You see, the fate of all who reject Christ as Savior is that God's judgment will come. Romans 2 and verse 5 says, Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed. Friends, that is a sobering thought. But the beauty of it is, it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. That's the message of Hosea. Come to the Lord. Find grace and mercy. Learn what truth is all about. Understand the holiness of this God who is calling you to a relationship with himself. And it's there that you'll find freedom. And it's there that you'll find a true purpose in life. It's there that you'll find true significance and it's only there that you'll find these things so my prayer for us as individuals families church and even collectively as believers across our nation is that we would understand what truth and mercy and the knowledge of God is all about and that we would live in light of it and with a heart's desire to reach other people with it. Let's pray together. Father, your word is clear. And we receive it by faith, knowing that you are good and right and true and merciful. And you've given us knowledge of yourself through your creation, through your word, and ultimately through your son. I pray that the Lord Jesus would be high and exalted in our lives and that we would have no substitutes for him because there are none, but it would be Christ and Christ alone in our lives. So guide us, Lord, in that knowledge. Fill us with your spirit. Give us a love for people around us that perhaps their eyes and their hearts are darkened. And help us to be a good witness of what saving grace is all about in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Lord bless you. That's going to conclude our service together online and here in the room. And I look forward to seeing many, many of you on Sunday, and I'm just going to let you...